0: For me, um, you know, the long story is is that I, I come out of a black feminist tradition. I went to Spelman College. I had the privilege of um, learning about black feminism um, in undergrad. And then I got active in the labor movement at Ohio State University. When there was a huge strike on campus in 2000, and for me, this was a way to take that those feminist um, principles and put them into action. Um, and the, quite frankly, that's the thing that has kept me connected to the labor movement since honestly 2000, um, so a little over 20 years. Um, in that feeling that um, it's it's I'm not interested in theory. Uh, Just for theory's sake, um, I am very much so a praxis person. I want to think about how I can hear the stories of what's happening, um, how we make the connections to be able to name what's happening um, from multiple people, how we take action to do something about the challenges that are being raised and how we come back and reflect on, you know, why is this happening? How is this happening? Did this action work? And what more do we need to do? So, you know, I, I, I have kind of been in multiple spaces where that thing has just rung true for me. Um, and being rooted in, like I said, Kim Crenshaw's intersectionality and being able to see the world my entire working life through that lens, has made a big difference for the way that I come to this work.
1: Hey folks, this is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Here we look at efforts around the country to build the collective power of Black workers. Today our guest is Cherie Davis. Cherie is the Associate Director of the Center for Innovation in Worker Organization at Rutgers University. I've known Cherie for several years now, as we serve on the board of the National Black Worker Center. One thing, one of many things, that's impressive about Cherie is her commitment to fuse her desire to promote deep worker organizing with her Black feminist sensibility. This commitment is refreshing in a world where too many people wish to pit racial and gender consciousness against class consciousness. Cherie also sees the need to move beyond a narrow focus on individual workers, and explore how to transform their organizations, unions, and worker centers into a weapon to be wielded in order to improve the conditions of workers both in and out of the workplace. We had a great conversation. Enjoy. But I do want to remind you that we need your support. Here at Black Work Talk, we are committed to developing a vibrant conversation, bringing you the key voices building Black worker power in the workplace and in the neighborhood. Bringing you the best guests and the most timely discussions takes resources. We depend upon people power to grow. So please go to Patreon to make a financial contribution large or small and become part of our community to support the work we do here at Black Work Talk. And Black Work Talk comes to you via Organizing Upgrade, an online space created to strengthen social movements. If you appreciate Black Work Talk, check out Organizing Upgrade's weekly live show Frontline Dispatches. The show spotlights organizers and activists at ground zero of fights for racial and economic justice. Like Black Work Talk, it gives the mic to people with worlds of insight who you might not hear otherwise. You can catch it on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central, and 4 p.m. Pacific, or anytime on Organizing Upgrades Facebook page. Sheree, hey, how you doing, girl?
0: Yeah, I'm doing good, Stephen, how fine. are you?
1: I- I'm so glad you jumped on the show. You know, I've been enjoying doing this, and, and I know we just talked yesterday at a board meeting. Um, the audience may not know, but Sheree and I are both on the board of the National Black Workers Center, and actually we're running a relay race because I am the outgoing board chair, and yesterday I passed the metaphorical baton to Sheree, and so that's what yes. we did. So she now has the power, Okay.
0: I do. I'm, but I'm holding the baton really tight and making sure that you don't let go of it too soon um, so that I have a little bit of running time. What's that thing? What happens when you catch it and you're like running together? Yes,
1: um, but clearly you haven't run a real yes. race because once you hold on and I, I let go, I'm gone, girl. Okay. So understand that. <laughs> Any promises I made about whatever that was in the past, that was them. <laughs> but seriously, though, seriously, though, um, I'm glad you came on. You're doing a lot of great work. And I just want, want to talk to you about what's happening today and our world around us, um, get a sense about your work. And not only the work, but kind of your thoughts behind it, you know, because I think you have a lot of important insights for us to just talk a little bit of about and just have, have a good time, okay? Sounds good. The world's crazy, you know? Um, and it it's is. not so much this latest thing with Cheney trying to call out Trump consistently, those sort of things, but beyond that, you know, so with this current situation, what, what's your, what's your assessment? And in particular, like what do you think some of the challenges facing our movement today?
0: So, you know, the thing that I've been thinking about most recently is what do we do with this crack, right? Like there's a moment that opened up um, where, We had to take a minute. We had to pause. Uh, We had to regroup. We had to pivot. We had to figure out another way to connect um, and think about how we address immediate challenges. Right. That's folks, you know, on the ground. That's folks trying to get what was needed to the people on the ground to get it out. Um, All of these things have happened. And now I feel like there's about to be a big pivot to reopen um, and in my mind, it's like, all right, how how do we reopen in a way that doesn't drop all of the lessons that we learned in the past year, that doesn't have us go back to doing the things that we knew we should have changed, but we didn't change until we were forced to? Um how do we continue having the not only the conversations, but changing the practices? Um, and I'm saying that, you know, when I think about the labor movement now, I, I used to be very much so um, focused on, you know, members and organizing and out there and people who are not in the structure. But now I'm thinking about both and I'm thinking, you know, how as a, as a labor movement, how do you um, we actually shift to what it looks like to be it's an inclusive workplace, um, to be listening, not because it's a racial reckoning, but because it is the thing that we should have been doing all along, um, to be identifying our um, these strategists who brought us through, not only at a political level, but also again on the ground uh, for not only members, but people who were suffering who don't have access to organizations. So I'm, I'm, all of these things just kind of lead me to, okay, there was an opening. We have to do something different. The challenge is how do we lead? How do we um, strategize? How do we move in the ways that we know we need to move now? Right? How, how do we actually connect with each other, continue to connect with each other, listen to each other, learn and, and kind of broaden, move beyond the boxes that we've operated within um, such that the way we're moving, um, it is in alignment with where we're trying to go um, with the values that we have. So uh, those are some of the things that I've been thinking about. Let me about. jump
1: in a second and go back because you implied some things, but I want to make it more explicit. You said lessons learned. What are those lessons we learned in the last year or so?
0: You know, one of them, just on a baseline level. Is that we actually don't have to work in the ways that we have been working, right? So I think about a, a lot of the work that I've been doing um, has been with labor leaders um, and with uh, like managing directors who deal with kind of the internal policies and practices. And you know, before it was like if you're if you're a mom. And, you know, you have kids. That's great. You need to figure out what you're going to do with them so that you can be on this movement stuff. Right. Like you need to you need to. That's for you to figure out. Right. Um, But then everybody was in a situation where whoever you were caring for, whatever you were doing had to be taken into account. And so I feel like some of the lessons have been we actually can think differently about whether everybody needs to be in the same place at the same time, in the same way, doing the same thing to be productive, to get the work done. Um, We also can be shifting in the ways of saying, you know what, Um, there's triple pandemics and we're going to deal with those things collectively in the areas where we have control, where we're the decision makers, and we're going to advance models for how it can be done right, in other arenas. And we're going to push demands for that. And so that both and piece, I feel like is another, for me, another lesson where it says, um, you know, we're going to deal with habits of white supremacy culture. We're going to call it, we're going to name it. Um, We're going to talk about the ways that these things show up every single day, not necessarily out there or what's happening in the streets only, but we're going to, both be responsive to that, and we're going to address the culture and the practices and the way that we're dealing with each other internally. Um, and and I would say, furthermore, I'm always the person that says, um, name what we're seeing. So many of the workers who we saw who, who maybe didn't get stimulus or maybe didn't have access um, were Black and brown folk. And being able to have it as a part of the national narrative, I feel like allowed us to be able to name and say and shift the narrative. And I just don't want a situation where the, those folks kind of go back into the shadows as we move along with uh, you know, getting back to quote unquote normal. So
1: I hear you saying a couple of things. make sure I got it right. I'm not trying to say what you're saying. Mm-hmm. One, one is is that internally. That, we, that, that unions and other economic justice groups began to behave differently because simply the COVID forced us to, to behave differently. And um, what he didn't say, but I'll put my little spin on it, that, that prior to COVID, we had kind of a, a male-dominated approach to doing these things. And, and to the extent that men and people who thought like men um, didn't have these kind of concerns, then simply you're on your own without some COVID kind of expanded the folk like dealing with these kids running around. <laughs> and it was just kind of a sad state in some ways. you think about it. It says that we have to experience something directly to change their behavior. That's a very slow way, like, yo, just a fire, but you didn't, so you got to touch it yourself sort of thing. Um, that's one thing right. I thought you were saying it was really important, kind of the internal workings of the organization itself. I also heard you say that, that we began to see other problems that had always been there we hadn't seen before. And now we're seeing the world in different ways as, as well. Um, any thoughts in terms of, of the external work? So I heard some internal things. I heard some kind of, mm-hmm. like, of a better term, narrative or lens sort of stuff. But how about the actual work itself? Any, any sort of changing work practices that occurred during this past year or so that you want to kind of maintain? Well,
0: one of the things that I also saw and that I, I, I see happening is a kind of a recognition that we can use some of the newer technology in service of building movement. Um, and as opposed to thinking about technology uh, as, as the thing that is, is uh, the enemy or causing harm. Um, and so I've been excited just, and we'll talk more about the National Black Worker Center, but just the, the creativity and, um, and how worker organizations and community-based organizations who are focused on caring for their, their, their folks kind of broadly, um, how they just use their creativity to shift um, and I'm thinking about in Florida, and I can't remember the name of the organization, but I've been tracking a couple organizations. I want to say it's a New Florida Project. But, it, you know, it was like people kept saying, well, we don't know what's going on with older people. We don't know what's happening. We don't know. And they were like, well, what, what, can't we just call them? Right? And so like... Pulled in phone banks to just call and say, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Do you have what you need? So like something really basic. It's like, okay, I can't knock on your door and I can't cause you harm. But if I have your phone number, I can reach out to you. And then we can actually generate what are some of the things that we're hearing that are common themes? What are the things that we have the resources to do something about? Let's do it. Okay, how I'm not on the ground, but I hear you're saying that you're doing this and you're doing this. But a funder reaches out to me and says, "Hey, we're trying to figure out how to move stuff. Do you have people to move it to?" Like people started really using their networks. What we call in Will and Power, we talk about activating the network. Um, but using their networks to talk about what can be done as a spo- as opposed to spending a lot of time talking about what couldn't be done. And I do feel like there was a lot of narrative that was, you know, we're unable to or we're we, we could not reach or we're not able to we wonder what's happening. But the this is the reason why, you know, for me in, in organized people is a, is a more powerful people is that those folks who were connected to organizations, they started to see the real value of it. So maybe they didn't know what their, their um, worker center was doing for them, or they didn't know what their union was doing them for, or what have you. But when it came down to understanding what's going on with the stimulus, who gets it, who doesn't, you know, what are some of the different things that are moving? How is reopening going to happen? It was these worker organizations that were answering those questions that were convening town halls, convening, creating space for people to come learn, ask questions, and say what was going on, what kind of impact this was having on them. And so in that way, I just feel like um, the innovation that we've seen over the past year, uh, again, the organizers activating and and getting into the what can we do, what can we do in the political arena, what can we do to feed people, that is the the piece that I just feel like we gotta hold on to. and it's not just service, but in many ways, the service conversation opened the door to be able to have a longer term connection conversation. Um, and I think that that's something that we have to be able to do, open more doors for people to connect to organization.
1: Real quickly and real briefly, I want to talk more about your kind of about your day job. Um, but you said we'll empower and folk may not know what that is. We want to talk about more yes. detail. Just give me the quick 30-second elevator pitch. What is Will and Power?
0: So Will and Power stands for Women Innovating Labor Leadership. Uh, And basically what it is, we talk about building infrastructure to support women's leadership throughout the labor movement. And when we say women, we mean that expansively. Um, When we say labor, we mean that expansively. So we engage unions, worker centers, community-based orgs. Um, And for us, it's uh, at the level of bringing people into the movement, support uh, and and apprenticeships, supporting emerging leaders, and um, and then holding executive leaders, particularly those who are new, the first women, the first women of color, to those roles. So That
1: was a very tall um, skyscraper, by the way, very high, main floor to the elevator. That's okay, though. But I want to make sure the audience knew what Will actually was. And I do want to come back to it in a second. But one thing I appreciate about you talking about your kind of analysis of the current situation, Sheree, is um, you focus on what we can control. You know, a lot of times amongst the left and beyond the left, I care about the left more than some non-left spaces, is we focus on how evil those people are, and how bad these things do, like the Republicans are whatever, or the G- Democrats can't be trusted, or Trump is whatever. And, and, and my thing is that I use the example of that if someone said, you're pitching in Chicago in December, you know what? It was cold. I said, well, duh. Okay, it's going to be cold in Chicago in December, y'all. Okay, what are you doing about it? And so I really appreciate the idea that you focus on what we can control because that to me is one, almost like duh, the obvious thing, but also it can maintain our sanity because if you struggle to, to control what you can control and do it better, you can actually do that. Um, but we can't stop the crazy from being crazy in the short term at least. So I appreciate that kind of focus on what we can do, what we can control. I've also appreciated how in talking, you, when I hear your view of the world, you're very much rooted in the idea of we've got to organize workers. That's like a dumb, dumb thing, gotta be done. But when you talk about doing that and doing that in a very firm, grounded, organic way, that means you gotta look at how race and gender impacts worker organizing. And not so much an either or, but you can't speak of workers by speaking on race and, and, and gender. I think it's really super important, by the way. How'd you come how how did you come to that viewpoint?
0: So, you know, the thing that I'll say is um, first and foremost, the the understanding about organizing and folks being organized. Like I am a, a bit of a disciple of Adrian Marie Brown's Emergent Strategy. Um, and we talk about fractals and the relationship between the small and the large. And I learned a long time ago that if you build a real relationship with somebody, um, that you can do something. But if you build a transactional relationship with someone, you might be able to get something in the moment, but you're not going to be able to build anything. And so, rooted in, like I said, Kim Crenshaw's intersectionality and being able to see the world, my entire working life through that lens has made a big difference for the way that I come to this work.
1: To maybe make it more explicit for either audience or for me at least, right? Um, when you yes. say you bring the you 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 are bring since your Ohio State days. Um, you have black fitness principles to the work. What are those principles? That, what are the black fitness principles that you bring to the work?
0: You know, um, I started out, you know, with bell hooks and, and learning about the importance of talking back, uh, seeing what's happening, naming what's happening um, and speaking back to it, not just accepting it. Um, I, again, I, I have to name Kimberly Crenshaw and, uh, um, and intersectionality and intersectionality. And remind people that that was born of a workplace struggle, where she's looking at um, Emma de Reed's experience with um, uh, uh, trying to be hired with, uh, as she says, a, a car manufacturer, to not name anybody in particular. Um, and then what it means to uh, have the courts reject the case because they say you know, you have to bring a racial, racial discrimination suit or you have to bring a sex discrimination suit. But if you are trying to show up as a Black woman as a whole person, that you can't do that because that's two swings at the bat as opposed to seeing that this whole thing is set up in a way that keeps Black women from being able to be visible in the experiences that they're having, right? So for me, being that right there um, has helped me to shape why it's important to make visible the stories of those who are most marginalized, to be able to see the complexity of um, how oppressive conditions um, are created based off of racism and sexism, homophobia, classism, um, and, and in many ways that it actually creates the class status that you have, like all of these things kind of are the things that can hold you or keep you from being able to kind of stretch out and expand. Um, and, and again, because I was able to see that early, I've seen it show up in workplaces. I've seen it show up in, you know, private, you know, in political spaces, Um, And it's always given me the language. And and this is what I would say about Black feminism. It's given me a language to be able to name the injustices that I see in the world and then also start working to address them uh, with remedies that actually address the problems, not just a remedy for remedy's sake.
1: Wow, so much we can get into. Uh, We have some, some time constraints and we can't talk for hours and hours and hours at a time. But one thing I heard you say I, I'm glad you explained kind of the, the a snapshot of the origins of, of, of Kim Crenshaw's view of intersectionality that arose from a legal case in particular. Because in talking about it, you also said people are whole people. Uh, and to me, as um, a non-lawyer, that I will say proudly I'm a non-lawyer, by the way, I, 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 I appreciate <laughs> the the wholeness of of the, the talk and concerned about how some people can take the idea of intersectionality as if there are two different things that come actually intersect periodically. And I, and I think in other words, you don't have simply race and gender, they intersect periodically. Um, they actually, a way of talking about someone being a whole person. And I think that, mm-hmm. that that's important because our movement is what creates the silos, by the way, when your case, in, in terms of the law, the law created silo, right? You, um, right. But our exactly. It's our movement that creates the silos of people, whole people. And I mean that's the important thing that that, that we need to actually see people even whole people and treat them as whole people, and and through that we actually build greater strength, strengths. Strength. And that is, to me, it's more than a legal doctrine. It's simply how you have right. to see people and approach people in an attempt to change the world. Now you're talking also about as you approach folk, God, the term you said, as you approach people in non-transactional ways. You said a thing beyond that, but you can actually yeah. do more things, you know? That links back to what we said earlier in, in terms of how people were rolling during the pandemic. They actually began to not to talk to people and see where they're coming from. So it's not just this abstract theory, but you see it in a lot of ways coming through in the, in the, in the real world. So It's, it's really, really good. Um, what are been some, some of the challenges in trying to carry out the, the, your kind of way of looking at the world, your, 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 I call it, your, Black (laughs) feminist labor organizing way of looking at the world. What's some of the challenges in doing this?
0: You know, that's actually funny because I was just thinking, oh, I didn't have the other conversation, right? So intersectionality is the first thing that I was exposed to. But in my doctorate program, um, I got exposed to the larger framework that intersectionality sits in, which is critical race theory. And I laugh because I'm like... You know, I never imagined a time where uh, critical race theory would be in like the national narrative, um, not, not in a good way, <laughs> but in the national narrative. But I'm like, you have just made it possible for us to have a real conversation about this. Uh, and, well, so you and say I, you appreciate Donald Trump up.
1: more than before, you saying?
0: Look, I, I say if there's one thing, there's one thing that I do appreciate is that uh, he decided to do a thing that in my opinion, he didn't know much about what he was doing, but this thing does now allow me to have different kinds of conversations with people because I've been basically knocking on doors saying, hey, if you look at critical race theory, there's labor all through this. This is the place where political economy and, and, and narrative, like where we can be doing cultural and political economy work collectively. I'm an interdisciplinary scholar. I'm an interdisciplinary scholar-activist. And so for me, I'm like, yes, this is it. We can do it. Let's have the conversation. Um, and so now I would say that, you know, people are listening differently because they're like, oh, this critical race theory thing isn't like a fringe thing. This is something I might need to pay attention so,
1: to. Um since you have the masses listening to you right now, by the way, um, what is critical race theory? Uh,
0: so Critical race theory for me is a framework that allows me to be a whole full scholar activist. And so, you know, when I think about the tenets of critical race theory, the first one is recognizing that racism is like the permanence of racism and that it's not like, oh, they're playing the race card or, hey, this is about race over here is that this structure has been built, right? The system is built on racism and exploitation. Um, I'm constantly telling people I don't want to talk about inclusion until we start the conversation about the exclusion that got us here. And so if you're not willing to have the conversation about the exclusionary practices that got us here, then it is a waste of time to move forward into a conversation about how to include somebody into something that wasn't built for them. Um, That leads me to the other tenet, right? Whiteness is property understanding you know the the role that race the construction of race is related to black folks labor and the land that um, indigenous folks were disp- like the dispossession um, that that um, Uh, indigenous folks experience and continue to experience and that we actually are seeing happen over and over and over again for communities that are vulnerable. It's a continued practice. And so understanding whiteness as property, a thing that you have if you have whiteness that you can use it as currency Um, and being able to, to really nail down how this has existed, how it was created and why people vie for it, whether it is through assimilation or acculturation or what have you, why people want to be as close to whiteness as possible, because there's actually something tangible that you get out of doing that thing, even though it'll suck away your spirit and your soul. Um, Looking to the bottom, like, you know, um, I talk about Mari Matsuda all the time just because she kind of lays out a way to be able to always be in movement. So you can be an act an, an academic, but if you're trying to do scholarly work but you're not connected to the movements that are on the edges, then you and you're not paying attention to what's happening on the margins. She's like, go talk to those people. If you can't figure it out in your head, in your armchair, you know, <laughs> you know, thinking deeply just with books or what have you, go be with these folks. And I guarantee you that they have a vision for how to address these problems, have a a different framework for being able to address these issues um, and tell you what the real problem is and and the remedies that you need to be going for. Intersectionality, again, I already talked about that, but that's a huge part of it as well. So if I'm if I, I just taught a class on critical race theory and labor. I taught Derek Bell, I taught Sher- Cheryl Harris, I taught Mari Matsuda, I taught Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, I, I smiled every single day because people were like, had somebody told me this, like had I been able to put my finger on this, I could have done something differently, but I'm gonna do it now,
1: no, right? No, it's interesting, I got a, a comment, then a kind of a probing question. i have appreciated in my advanced years, by the way, is 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 um, listening more and trying to understand context because a lot of the things you talked about, about the world and its, and its wholeness, you might say, or its integrated organism, you might say, I would have said that was known before critical theory came out. And so I, I've learned to appreciate that I, I don't want to butcher the Fanon quote about each generation sort of thing. Got to come to known ways. I want to appreciate that and not be a gracio man on the side saying yo ain't new, you know. Um, but right. some, I say it to say one that I am kind of a gracio man, and, and but, but beyond that, to me, it's important to make sure that people get the depth of the understanding, get to appreciate the history of the theory, how to use it, because too often people get the the the, the the surface stuff, and and mm-hmm. that gives Rosh a lot of misuse of the tools, mm-hmm. you know. And so I, that that's all my kind of my kind of push to. to...
0: But I think that's right, though, Stephen. You know the that I think the kind of the older I've gotten, <laughs> one of the things I've had to remind myself is like so the messengers that spoke to me, won't necessarily be the messengers that speak to my son right? Who's 14. And he might need to hear it differently, laid out differently for oriented differently or pull it together differently in order for it to respond to a thing that matters to him. Um, And that I think you're absolutely right about that. I've had definitely had many people say, well, Derek Bell wasn't the first person to say this. And I'm saying, I hear you. And, but collectively there's a way that when you put certain things together, And they start making like connecting dots for you um, and open up opportunities for you to see something that can be done differently. I just feel like that's important. Somebody's going to call it or see it or experience it differently, whether it's here, whether it's overseas, the systems keep changing. Um, I just think it is important for us to have many points of entry for people to get into the game um, and to be in it and actively learning um, and figuring out how, how how we envision the world that we feel like is possible
1: And this leads to my kind of probing question in the sense that the, when you have people who are different, and it could be more than generational difference, by the way, but people who are different for the reasons mm-hmm. and who are seeing the world through their lenses, one way to kind of um, translate things is practice. And, and, yeah. and so what I want to kind of ask you is to talk about given your insights from critical race theory, how does it impact the practice of labor organizing? Um, And and I I mean, less the question of narrative lenses, but the actual work itself, kind of structures, campaigns, power building, those sort of things. Just wondering. Yeah. I mean, so I'm just going
0: to, I'm going to back up to when I was a a union rep and a grievance and arbitrations coordinator. Um, the thing that I know is that I had to sit with my folks. Like if we were going into bargaining, it, it 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 was necessary for me to sit with them to understand the challenges that they were dealing with in the space that they were dealing with. Like a, Like a very conscious approach to the fact that, like, I, I tell this story, but I just, it, it's it's not a great story, but um, I represented workers at Howard University and, you know, diverse, you know, bargaining team, but the same gender dynamics played out. So the the men were kind of in the maintenance and, you know, uh, grounds area, the women and food service and kind of housekeeping and all of that stuff, right? And So there are all these interesting classifications, but- there was a whole debate around direct deposit. I'm really young at that point. And so the brothers was like, nah, I'm not trying to have no direct deposit. And the sisters are like, yeah, let's let's get that direct deposit. And it took me a minute to figure out that they were like, yeah, no, that, that, that child support and that alimony can be tied to these direct deposit things. So there was a whole conversation about, you know, The nuances of what people want, what people need, what they don't want. And you can't learn that. Like, you can't think about that through text. Like, you can't think about that from a distance. There has to be some level of immersiveness. There has to be a way of thinking about the, the gendered nature, the class nature, some people being like, I don't have a bank, I'm unbanked. And so this idea of uh, direct deposit when I don't have a checking account doesn't make sense to me. So I just feel like what CRT says to me is, if I have a diger- diverse body of people um that I need to be thinking in a race-conscious and gender-conscious way. I have to bring that to the space. I have to put things in historical and political context. And that doesn't mean that whatever people say goes, I need to know where where we need to st- stop and sit and push each other to be better within our unit and then also If I, if we do that, then we can go to the table a lot stronger. So for, for me, it's a way of, it's a way of being in the work. And quite frankly, the types of relationships that I had with folks then, like to this day, there are people that I can reach out to that I haven't seen in 20 years, but, you know, three, four hour arguments where they hated the union. And then when I left, they, they, I brought them in to be on staff. And that came from like a true investment in their, not just their lives, but like uh, being able to change the material conditions of their lives and that they're the ones responsible for saving their own lives, not me. And I actually think the problem is, is that we need to be able to do that kind of organizing. And that kind of organizing for me is very much so a part of my feminist practice, but the, but I nearly killed myself trying to do that. Like, I was working all the time. I worked all the way until I stopped, right? Like, I, I, could, I couldn't do it anymore. And we can't actually keep doing this thing where we bring in 25-year-olds and wear them the hell out until they can't actually function in the labor movement anymore as organizers. We can't keep doing that either, I would say. And so the thing that I'm telling you was my practice. It's not necessarily a thing that is wholly supported within the structures that we have. We have a very male-centric, um, uh, young, no kids, move around, did, did that, that this is all that you do kind of way of doing organizing. And that can't stand for the movement that we should be trying to build. And
1: one thing you're saying, I thought about that. A lot of those practices you're talking about reflects the, the low-road form of business model that happens in a larger country. Um, we, we heard that, in, that one reason for the, the difficulties in, in the Amazon fight in Bessemer was high turnover. And, and, and so Amazon has a business model that says that I make profits off of turnover. And I think that we did the same thing, uh, in a lot sometimes on movement. And so I just think, to be honest, that, that I'm not clear if you need to label it, by the way, um, if you got to label it, I'm not clear that calling it a male dominant model is fully accurate because okay. I mean, I'm not sure the labels label important to be honest, by the way. i am just saying that there's a parallel between how the movement operates and how, in terms of trending through folk and expecting to pay mm-hmm. people with shit wages and when you're crazy mm-hmm. and then you burn out next up sort of thing and what Amazon does, or you see a lot of times mm-hmm. what happens now is we'll do a lot of fighting, um, against the gay economy and use contract works all day long in our work. And, and, and so, just that it's important that we both describe a phenomenon super well, and the labels yeah. are somewhat secondary, except to be a shorthand form of communication. And to the extent that shorthand mm-hmm. raises the barriers, you've got to be aware of that and kind of watch out for that. Um, yeah, I hear will
0: that. Will
1: and power, talking about it. Will and power, talking okay. about
0: it. You know what? Will and Power is the first opportunity I have ever had to bring all the parts of myself together. So I get to bring my academic side um, and the work that I've done in that arena. And I get to bring my um, involvement uh, with labor and what I know and learned um, from being. I worked at the AFL-CIO for a bit. I worked for SEIU. uh, in DC for the Justice for Janitors local, um, but it really was the place where I was able to to do that and say I'm going to focus on transformational new leadership um, and focus on women. And for for me, I lead programs that are focused on um, uh, cohorts of learning for emerging leaders who are like maybe two to five years working in the movement. Um, and then executive leaders who have recently stepped into a role, um, an executive leadership role within a union community-based organization or, um, worker center. And the beauty of what I've learned is that if you can curate a good space for people to come together, that, that, that they'll take care of each other, that they'll share, that they'll grow, that they'll process, that they'll challenge. Um, but I, you know, I designed for a majority women of color cohort. I designed for women of color to be at the center. Um, and it has actually served us really well in terms of being able to have some of the hard conversations that, in, that are specific uh, to women within the labor movement that aren't necessarily being had in other, in other parts of the movement in the same way. Um, It's also, I, I would say that one of the other things I would say, first and foremost, after um, the murder of George Floyd, this was a place where people were just kind of able to come in and, and we had to do kind of a, we did a race specific group, To come in because folks were raw, completely raw. Um, And then we brought the group back together. But it was a place where the white women in the program were able to talk with white facilitators to really process, you know, the way that they were seeing it or what have you. Um, and the women of color were able to talk through and process the way that they were experiencing. And what we said was we needed to be able to do it in that way. We had to be conscious of what was going on because we didn't want secondary harms to happen. Um, I, I feel like because we are not necessarily wholly in one institution or another, we have a little bit more freedom to be able to try some things, be a bit risky, but also be very responsive. I do want to say one of the things that I thought um, was extremely important that I, I, I th- that I learned is that, again, that piece around being organized, but particularly with peers, um, the ability to activate the network for folks to you know, and Washington state to get on and say, here's what's going on. This COVID thing just hit. Here's what's happening. This is what we're experiencing. This is what we're doing. This is the practice that we're having. This is the policy that we're changing. And to be able to tell folks who hadn't necessarily had that happen. Okay. You got to get ready. And for people to do scenario planning to get ready before it actually hit their state, like it it was, there was something just amazing about being able to end that moment have people give, you know, uh, information that, quite frankly, many people who were leaders did not have access to the same kind of networks um, to share and process um, and work through and plan together. And so we kept reminding them. The style of leadership that you're using might be different. Um, You don't have to do it the way that everybody else does it. Um, If you are a woman of color and you're the first one in this space and people are asking you as as a Black woman, your Black community is saying, hey, we need you to speak in this way as a labor leader. And then your labor community is telling you, we need you to speak in this way as a labor person. Like, Being able to say, you know what, I'm going to be a whole Black woman labor leader and I'm going to speak in the way that both of y'all need to hear it so that we can actually do the work that we need to do. Like having a support network, having a crew is going to give you the ability to be more courageous and more bold. Um, And those were the things that we were able to do last year um, that we didn't plan for. It just these are the things that were, you know, I, I think we created a container and then this organic um, support uh, uh, was there and people utilized it. Um, and, and that's, that for me is just, when I look back on what was, what we were able to do last year, I'm like really proud of it. Um, so I don't know if that answered your no, question. But-
1: when I hear you talk about the the first thing in terms of the, the discussions around George, the reaction to George Floyd, I was thinking one that's similar to who, how folk were trying to approach, some of us trying to approach around the whole Black-Brown stuff on immigration, that, that mm-hmm. when do you have kind of separate spaces, when you have joint spaces In the, in the importance to have both when they're appropriate, you know? And mm-hmm. hoping you write those hope that you write those experiences up, Sheree, because cause we gotta learn from, from doing stuff and you gotta be able to share the lessons. And we don't wanna each one have to touch fire to, to, to learn certain things. And, and, and what you said right. about the value of having separate spaces as a precondition to having solidarity is a thing people don't often hear. Because many times people hear oh. hear that if you start in separateness, you can going enter separateness. And you're saying that's not true. That, 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 that in this case, the way you actually build better con- connection between um, within the group that was diverse was to have people go into the separate spaces to fully process things in the way they need to process. Really important lesson to hear. So I hope that that we leave this interview today. You immediately go write it up, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> look, look, I have a couple writing sessions coming up over the next couple yeah. of weeks. But seriously, so it's I
1: just it's it's important to be to pass on. You mentioned the very beginning about lessons learned from, from COVID, how we can behave differently. To me it's important when you laid it out. It's important to hear that. Um as you're talking to I thought about the incredible value of building the, 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 the cohort amongst women and labor folk, women defined broadly, labor defined broadly. And I wonder how you get that strength into a lot of elements of our world. So I thought about that we have clue exists, Coalition Labor Union Women, mm-hmm. okay? We have unions that have different like women's spaces and you have unions that exist. We got rid of them, right? And, and I just, any thoughts on how you kind of take over? I'm joking about takeover. We know what I'm saying how you kind of how it's not just a closest sort of cool network we have, but actually it's kind of going to broader spaces.
0: You know, honestly, in, in terms of building power, one of the things that um, my co-director and I, Lane Wyndham, one of the things that we did was we went and talked with uh, you know current women's networks. Um, we talked with leaders uh, at, at ahead of time. Right. But, you know, we're stepping into this arena. These are the things that we want to do. We're not looking to duplicate your work. We're looking to complement it. And so, you know, one of the things that I appreciate is um, that my boss, Marilyn Snyderman, trusted me to be able to do that relationship piece. And so in my mind, everything that we are always trying to do is say, what, what organizations are already out there? What are the things that they are really strong at? How do we amplify the work that they're already doing? And also, how do we build relationships such that they're saying, hey, we like that thing you're doing. Come do it over here. Come do that session or do that workshop or what have you. And then there's a way for us to say, hey, are you connected with this network? Are you connected with this? So the, it's, I am all about collaboration. I am uninterested in competition. And so a lot of even the way that we're designing for what we're doing this year because we I am not going to run cohort programs if we cannot be in person. I don't believe that you can build strong, lasting relationships without people having some some body language, right? Like some Connection, connection. Um, but in the interim, while we're in this space where we have access to the technology to connect with people all over the globe, I'm definitely not going to waste that. And so my mindset is, as we're designing for our Women's Leadership Symposium, like we're going to do a women Labor Leadership Symposium in September, um, we're doing a global transformational um, Women's Leadership Symposium, Labor Leadership um, uh, event in November. But the first thing that we were talking about today was there are already networks. So how are we going to talk with the women's summer schools that have been around for a long time? How are we involving Clue? You know, what, what would it mean to bring the, the we build nations and uh, uh, the um, uh, what's it called the sisters in the brotherhood, right? Like what would it mean for us to be having a conversation around What the needs are at this point, what we have the ability to do, how we connect, how we grow. How do we do that? So I I guess for me, um, we have modules that we've designed for being able to get at like your own leadership practices, your own leader, like how you can be present in the role, shaping it you know, making space so that you're not the first woman or the first person of color and the last. Right. So we're, we're trying to design in ways that we can kind of jump in. Um, You know, we're working with SEIU out in Oregon and they're doing a women's conference and we're like, Hey, can we can do something? We can help you think through this stuff. You know, we can help with some design, but because we sit where we sit, we we really have the privilege of being able to be innovative and move without necessarily having to go through a, the same kind of chain of command that some of, some organizations have. So I just feel like as long as the point is to be able to build movement thinking and to build the movement, um, that there is always an opportunity for figuring out some synergy and some alignment and ways to build all of our work. We, there's too many unorganized people for us to be competing over anybody. Um, too many Right, there are people who I'm, I mean, I'm teaching at Spelman, and and I'm talking to young women in the South, and they don't even know what a union is. That's how long some you know these these generations have not even seen union activity. Right, I'm my father's U it was U UAW, so I didn't know unions, but I knew my dad had one. But these folks are growing up without having any sense. So when I teach this class, COVID nineteen. And Black workers co-teach it with um, the wonderful Danielle T. Phillips Cunningham at Spelman because here's the thing I love. I say, hey, I really want to teach this class. And since we virtual, can I do it? And then the folks that I have in my network because I built relationships say, sure, sounds like a great idea. Let's move that through. Class is full. And we have all these young Black women base- basically saying, let me tell you about the long lineage that we have um, with doing worker justice organizing and shaping not only race, but shaping labor policy and all of this stuff. Let me tell you about the folks who are doing this amazing work and had them say, wait, you mean to tell me that working at Kroger, I, I, I have some rights over here? Or you mean to tell me that doing this childcare thing, I have some rights? Wait, hold on. Like, Let's talk about this some more, right? There's just too many places where folks need this conversation for us to be kind of holed up in the, we, you know, these are our people or these folks belong to us. That's not what we're yeah, about. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, let me shift to what I know another area of your, of your practice. Um, you're involved in starting a Black Worker Center in Philadelphia. Um, yes. Why are you doing this? This is the spirit of John Lewis, Good Trouble. With what you doing exactly?
0: <laughs> you know, I moved to Philadelphia, and I was like, I'm doing this national work. I I I I left Atlanta because I was just wore out for, with the local hyper local work. They they wore me out. So I was like, I don't know about that. But they're just these dynamic sisters here. Um, you know, I, I I was able to connect with uh uh through our board work um, with Tanya Wallace Goldburn and convinced her to come to a brunch in Philadelphia a couple years ago and talk about the Black Worker Center, you know, and honestly, we had the brunch and I felt like nobody, nobody, I reached out afterwards and I said, hey, what do y'all think? And I didn't hear anything. And I said, oh, well, we tried, you know, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see what happens. And maybe about eight months later, um, dynamic. Uh, she is now the deputy director, research director at the Action Center on Race and the Economy. Um, her name is Brittany Austin, and also Danielle um, Newsom, who is with the Larry Krasner's, the DA's office here, prosecuting corporations um, uh, for mistreatment of workers. I, I, those two sisters was like, we, we're doing it. And they pulled these folks together here locally. They used every network that they had to pull people together and have been holding a steering committee for about a little over a year and I was they said come on and I was like look I'm with I'm with it I was surprised but the 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 fact that there's so many organizations that are focused on black issues but aren't black led is the thing that Brittany and Danielle really put forward. They were like something like there's something not right about not having black led organizations dealing with the economic justice issues that black workers in particular face here in Philadelphia, especially being in Philadelphia. And so, you know, we've been kind of taking our time because everybody has full-time jobs wading into this space Making sure again that we're not stepping on toes, that we're filling a gap, um, but wanting to figure out what the hell's going on because the temp worker stuff here is no joke. Like, black folks um, in so many ways are—they're not able to connect with the the wealth that is moving through this city, um, and it's it is not just about labor and 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 um and kind of that lens of uh, uh, economics, it is deeply about race and racism um, and particularly anti-Black racism. And so we're trying to kind of get get to what is really going on here, what are people experiencing, and to be able to build from there. So
1: where do you want to be in a year for this, for this process?
0: You know what? In a year, I want us to have like, you know, cause I'm a dream big, at least 150 to 200 members. And we have like at least, at least 10 member leaders who are active, who are shaping and, 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 and um, uh, organizing and leading know your rights uh, workshops and, and, and doing political education um, and, and, Also being able to get to a place of moving some campaigns because there's a lot of really interesting laws on the books that could be very supportive for Black workers, but it's a matter of taking them from something that's on paper to something that is, you know, uh, people are fully aware of and that there's some enforcement behind it. And so I think between organizing and figuring out some good campaign work, um, I, I want us to be. I want us to be moving and to be calling people's names and seeing some faces uh, uh, within the year.
1: Great. And one thing I, I know about Philadelphia to me is interesting. It's a bit different from other cities. Is there a lot of kind of major unions run by black folks in Philadelphia? And I just wonder how that will fit in. And I don't need an answer. I just I just wonder how that would fit into kind of the, the growth of the black of the black workers' center in Philadelphia. And also I wonder, given all the mobilization that took place in Pennsylvania around the election, how the energy complements the way the phrase was used, what's going on as well. Because it seems to me going to the, the broader kind of movement activity is you know, Pennsylvania will be is a swing state. there this been a battle for the Senate seat in, in, in Pennsylvania and the whole tug-of-war over, do you care about folk in Philly or the suburbs, the whole kind of tug-of-war will, will be there. And I always thought that, uh, that power determines who wins tug-of-war. And, and the more we talk, the less we have power, the more we actually work, the more we have power. So we would be excited to check back in a year and, and hear about Shree Davis running for governor in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and so forth. <laughs> but seriously, <laughs> seriously though, it'd be, be good to, to hear the work. That's really important what you're doing. Um, how do you define Black freedom?
0: You know what, I honestly feel like the ability to shape your own life, to shape your own communities, um, to be wholly yourself, uh, whether it's at work, in a store, um, driving in your car, uh, parenting. The, for me, not feeling like you are the problem, right? In every space that you go into, but always being able to see quite frankly for me that black folks are and have been the solution. And so freedom to me looks like being able to move out of that kind of framework of problem or solution but being able to set our own course—that
1: sounds sounds good. Um, I'm kind of winding down because we could we could talk for a long time, but but yeah, no, but thought, we, we yeah. have um, other things to do as well. And, and but but <laughs> what books or articles are you reading nowadays?
0: Um, so the book that I just cracked is called "Rebellious Mourning: um, The Collective Work of Grief." Grief. It's edited by Cindy Milstein. It was sent to me, Um, and the reason why I've been spending some time thinking about grief and mourning is, there's black folks lost a lot in the last year. If we're serious about being able to engage people and to do it in a way that is, um, you know, real, uh, provides real connection, we're we're going to have to address this grief in some way um, and to be able to provide hope and I just have been thinking a lot about the vulnerability that I've seen um the the the, the challenges that people have faced but the ways that they've overcome it but I want to make sure that it's it's not at the expense of like, their health themselves or what have you, that it's just kind of doing the work, but that, I don't know, that we design and and create space for people to be whole and do the work. Um, And so that's what I've been thinking about. That's
1: really good. One quick thing I thought back to when you said that to your earlier beginning discussion over the value of doing the service work, you know, and building connections and that, We have the artificial breakup between organizing, servicing, and kind of personal work, right? And and those are all, we hold people, right? They all come together. And to me, part of the challenge is always how do we build organic movement that acquire those things? So that's really great that, that, that you're doing that and that sounds good. But how about music, though? What music drives you?
0: that's a struggle i you know i'm just old school if i'm honest i'm i'm you're gonna find me listening to some layla hathaway um in my happy times okay
1: donnie might be old school not layla Okay. but keep going okay layla hathaway
0: i mean i i hear you i hear you labels Uh,
1: content that's cool so layla hathaway got you going who else
0: (laughs) who else um who else (laughs) I don't know. I'm a I'm a I just listen to mixtapes. I don't have anybody in particular. I mean, I always love me some Janelle Monae Okay. Should give me some give me some freedom music. Okay. Uh, but in general, like I said, i I you I'm I got a Baker and some and some Layla Hathaway.
1: That sound, <laughs> That's been. This has been great, Sheree. I Really appreciate that. Um I said a lot, I appreciate you. I I like what you're doing. I really appreciate um being your friend appreciate being the board with you and appreciate hearing the work and i think the the work of trying to bring your perspective um to people who don't normally see labor stuff is so so important in some ways it's like being a translator and we got to do that to, to, to make us stronger so thanks for the work you're doing thanks for coming on the show and um we'll be in touch okay all
0: right thanks so much Stephen. i appreciate being invited okay.
1: That was nice. Seeing workers as whole workers who bring all aspects of their lives to the workplace is essential to building working class power. And it is rare when we see that view through the lens of black feminism. Another thing I appreciate about Cherie is her focus on what we can control as we seek to change the world. That is a healthy approach that bodes well for the future. I look forward to circling back with Cherie to see how things are going Especially the development of the Black Worker Center in Philadelphia. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network of our movement for change. We need your help as we seek to build the Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast, wherever you find your podcast, and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the financial support, I would love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests or future topics to explore, please let me know. Reach out to me at steven at blackworktalk.com, and I promise to get back to you. Until the next episode, stay safe
0: and be well.